Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest, longtime friend of the podcast, Sam Vecini, NBA draft and college basketball expert at The Athletic. A lot to discuss in terms of the machinations of the draft and the pre-draft process. And also, we go through something I thought was a fun exercise, which is the the elevator pitch for, so the positive elevator pitch for the top 10 players in his recently released mock draft at The Athletic. So we go through kind of like, if it works, how it could work. And I thought that was really fun. Episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. And I Survived, a new true crime podcast. Episode runs... A little bit over an hour. Uh, lots of good stuff in there. I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, how are you doing right now? I am in quarantine. I have a dog who is staring at my two cats. My two cats love to play fight and uh, wrestle. And then the dog gets very angry at them because she thinks they're actually fighting. Or she's jealous that she can't do it with them because she's smaller than both of the cats. Like... This is these are the things that excite me now. These are the things that, uh, you know, I now have to get enthused by in my life due to this self-quarantine world that we live in now. I did not watch any basketball for a week. And then today I started doing a little bit of draft film. And even though I wasn't exactly encouraged by what I saw, I was so excited to actually watch basketball again. Like I I was just beaming for like that 35 minutes where I was really in depth and taking notes and, and watching film. And it is, yeah, it is distinctly different. I'm also sheltering in place in the great city of San Francisco. And it is, yeah, I mean, I think the kind of the place to start with this is something you, you wrote about this with, with John Hollinger, but you also did a piece on your own is, I mean, there's a lot of college basketball to talk about, but as much uncertainty as the NBA is dealing with right now with, you know, the season on hiatus for an indeterminate amount of time and everything else, a point that you brought up, which I think is very important to emphasize is that whatever is happening with the draft has to happen after we know what's happening with the season, because that's the only way we'll figure out what's going on. I mean, I I can confirm for you. Um, like a hundred percent that that is the case. Um, they're deciding what to do with the season and then deciding what to do with the draft. Um, in that case, I strongly believe that we will know what the season looks like before we know what the draft looks like. And because of that, I think that we'll know, um, basically by like, you know, June 10th, at least, I mean, like, I, I this I can't confirm, but, like, I think we're going to know by, like, the midpoint of June if the season is going to continue because I think that if the season doesn't continue, they would prefer to keep the draft in the offseason kind of in the same range that it is now because that would allow them to potentially start next season on time. The first and foremost, like, biggest thing that they do want to do Above all, they want to get a champion for this season. They want to finish this season if possible. They don't want to be a suspended season like, what was it, 1994 in the major in Major League Baseball, right? They really want to find a way to finish this season. Um, and if it involves going into August to do so, they're comfortable with that from what I understand. But 
I do believe that they're going to have to make that decision by at least the midpoint of June. Right. And since that decision, you know, since that will basically determine the timeline of the draft process, that'll be a big domino that, that needs to fall. And there are other ones that would be logical to have in that kind of sequence, like whether there will be a combine, if so, when, but some of that will be more determined by what what processes are available. And that was something that you got into both in the piece with John and also in your mock draft is the uncertainty that these players have in a bunch of different capacities. It's how much can they work out? How much can they do, you know, probably not going to do workouts for teams and anything like that, but how much like exercise and all that type of stuff can they do? And then also what kind of guidance will they get? Like this is a, a situation where a lot of players are likely going to be flying blind. That's right. Um, a big part that I wrote about today at the top of my mock draft was coaches, agents, you know, trainers, you know, people who get information and share it with players. They're just kind of unsure how to go about doing this. Like they're just unsure. This is totally uncharted territory now. Um, how do coaches go about giving advice to their players when, those players aren't really going to get a chance to prove themselves in the pre-draft process. How are, uh, you know, parents going to know what to tell their players to do whenever we've just never seen anything like this before? Uh, the fact that, you know, typically the season, it ends in like a staggered manner, right? Like teams get eliminated at the end of the regular season because they don't make the conference tournament. And then, Teams get eliminated early in the conference tournament and then at the end of the conference tournament. And then they get eliminated um, in the NIT and then they get eliminated in the NCAA tournament. And then the NCAA tournament ends and then there's European basketball that uh, scouts go evaluate, right? None of that has happened. And every single basketball player that is eligible for the draft right now is the season's over. It's done. So it's created like a free-for-all right now for agents trying to figure out, okay, what clients we want to sign? Who's declaring for the draft? How do we uh, advise our clients when they're asking us questions because everyone's done, but we actually don't know who's going to declare for the draft yet? It's honestly like the season is in flux, and that's the most important part. But like playing the season, not playing the season, that's like kind of a binary decision based upon what feedback they get from doctors and from medical professionals, right? The draft has like 97 moving parts and is probably the most complicated aspect of the way that this offseason and the way that this season, um, you know, over the course of the next six months is going to operate. Right. And there, there are so many decisions that need to be made. And it also, I mean, I was thinking this morning, I was reading, I was reading your mock and I was, I was cracking up because I remembered one of our conversations on this podcast a few months ago was me and you agreeing with me, lamenting about how much less information we were going to have to evaluate the top. I think that related to Wiseman leaving, leaving Memphis yep. and, and also some of the injuries that were going on. Well, we ended up with a lot less information than that. And remember that yeah. one of the other big times for in-person scouting for NBA teams is 
conference tournaments, NCAA tournament, because you can have yep. consolidation in venues, can have that, and all of that being wiped away while it was done for completely the right reasons, it w- that the decision makers and the scouts and everybody who informs the decision makers are going to have so much less information than they did before. No, that's 100% right. That is 1,000% right. Um, we're really going to be dealing with an information deficit this year. Uh in real ways, because you just think about like the logistics of travel. Typically it's not uncommon for, you know, some kids to do 12 workouts. Like I think the most I've ever heard is like 16 workouts, but you know, you, you get into like the 10 range, like that's not all that uncommon for guys that are in the first round. Like they tend to do like five to eight or nine. A lot of the time, uh, if you're like a top pick, you're probably only doing, you know, one to four. Right. But this year, I mean, I just don't think that there are going to be as many workouts, as many meetings. Like, look, FaceTime exists, and it's something that teams will utilize to the fullest extent. But there's just something different about being in person and, like, flying someone to the city and spending, you know, 12 hours with them instead of doing, like, a two-hour uh, Skype or time interview, right? So... Teams are going to be, I don't want to say flying totally blind because like, look, the tape is always going to be the most important part of where a player gets picked, right? But there are going to be aspects of a player's future where teams are flying with less information than what we've seen in the past. Right. And that is a, a more judicious way to put it. And and you're right, and and that information, you know, the tape on a lot of these guys, there is less tape, which is you know both in terms, yeah, of, that's true, both in terms of not having conference tournaments and all that, but also some of these guys that went into different circumstances or or something like the Wiseman situation, of course. Though there are precedents for basically all of those. I mean, and teams also, this is why it is so important for those who have the capacity to analyze players whenever you can, you know, like to get into the the FIBA stuff, or I mean hoop summit and all that because you never know when that's going to be all you have and that's a a a real challenge for some of these but let let's transition to the top of this draft and it's a fascinating one you drew parallels which i think is totally fair to 2013 which would send a cold shiver down the spines of fan bases who have picks in the top part of this draft and some of that is this, the the larger structural stuff that there just aren't the high end prospects, but there are also these weird similarities in terms of like what kinds of profiles some of the guys have. Yeah, so you know, <laughs> you look at someone like Anthony Edwards, who's like this power athlete, who's a scorer and nothing else right now. Um, can make like he's a good passer too. That's probably a little bit unfair, and um, you know, you know, playmaker who just makes shit happen, right? But, you know, on a not very good team, like it's I'm not saying he's Anthony Bennett because he's not. He's just a way better athlete than that. Like he's just considerably better across the board. But like that UNLV team was not very good. I know they won 25 games, but they lost more games against uh, teams outside the top 90 than they won against teams inside the top 50. So like, you know, it's not difficult to draw that comparison. It's not difficult to draw the comparison of like a European guy at the top and of like Victor Oladipo being this elite level, you know, national player of the year candidate that, uh, you know, Obi Toppin was essentially as well. So 
it's just a funny draft. There's no consensus number one. No team is uh, – no team has consensus across all of their evaluators on who number one is, I don't think. Um, it's just a realistic assessment of this draft. Uh, like to put it into context, like I firmly believe R.J. Barrett would go number one in this draft. Uh, I, I think that that maybe says something to where uh, you know maybe – that puts it into context a little bit more for uh, NBA fans and RJ, you know, hasn't set the world on fire this year. I'm still a fan, but like, uh, you know, RJ had real flaws last year. I think that RJ's flaws are more minimal than, you know, Anthony Edwards, than James Wiseman, than LaMelo Ball, than Obi Toppin, Killian Hayes, Denny of Dia, et cetera. Yeah, it is. It is just such a, such a different and, I would say a challenging class, but it also paralleling 2013, you know, I, I was writing about that back in the day for Real GM. And one of the elements of it, and you and I have talked about this on the pod before, is the idea that well, and this is different than 13, maybe to me, I haven't gone through my own analysis to say if this is going to be the same because I have to watch a lot more film. But in the 13 class, one of the things I said was, well, everybody has a pretty low floor and a lot of them had low expected value. So then you aim for ceiling. That that could be true. I'll have to see on that. But then the other part of it is, if you don't, if there's not anybody that you really love, to me, then it's even more incumbent upon decision makers to go best prospect available, even if there's overlap. Because you know, even if there's overlap with somebody that you already have, maybe what you're drafting is a rotation player rather than a starter. And there are very few teams, if any, that are so flush at a specific spot that they're better off kind of going down to take somebody that they like less because they play a better position. So it's funny. I was just talking to a consultant for uh, you know, NBA teams and we, and we always go off on tangents on this podcast. So I think this is an interesting one. Sure. What does best player available mean? Because like it gets said all the time as a shorthand. And to be honest, I hate it. Uh, I think that every, for every team, the best player available is very, very different. And I think a lot of it depends on contextual situation. Some people just think of it as, you know, the guy who has the highest ceiling. Well, a big part of reaching ceiling and reaching uh, true developmental outcomes is the situation you get drafted into, uh, especially in a draft like this, where there isn't a Zion Williamson, right? There isn't a DeAndre Ayton or a uh, Luka Doncic, right? So when you say best player available, I generally agree with you that like teams should take the best player available, but I, I just think that that is so different for everyone. Like if I'm the Warriors and I'm trying to like where, where my organizational goals are and I'm trying to compete for a title next year while also balancing the future a little bit, like I'm probably taking Obi Toppin over James Wiseman, despite the fact that I think Wiseman's ceiling is probably a little bit higher because I think that Toppin is going to be able to make an impact earlier in his career and that value of getting someone like an Obi Toppin on a rookie scale deal during their you know last few years that can actually contribute during all four of those rookie scale years. I think that that's the kind of thing that's more important for Golden State than just like swinging for the fences. Like I would take Anthony Edwards over Obi Toppin just in a vacuum because I like Anthony Edwards uh, at a scale more than uh, you know James Wiseman. 
But I just think that for every team, that moniker of who the best player available is, especially whenever you start considering what scheme does each team play? Uh, does, uh, does James Wiseman work in a scheme where teams play switch heavy coverages or is he going to be more successful in a drop coverage pick and roll scheme? Like I, I just, I, I always think that best player available is going to be very different for every team. There is a lot of merit to that. Plenty more with Sam Vecini in a moment, but first, this message from Bet Online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Bet Online still has hundreds of places to wager, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, all open 24 hours a day and all online. Also, sports are not totally done. You can check out their site and see what is available at the moment. And if you're into entertainment, you can still bet on American Idol, the elections, and even Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Be sure to use the promo code PODCAST1 to receive your 50% welcome bonus. And as you'll get later on, I talk with Dave Mason of Online about what they're doing in this, you know, sports shutdown. And uh, there's some interesting conversation there. But a lot of different things going on. They're still trying out new ideas. So that's a great thing to go to betonline.ag and use that Podcast One promo code, not only because it gives you that awesome 50% sign-up bonus, but because it tells them that you came from us, and hopefully that may- encourages them to keep advertising with us. So again, BetOnline, Podcast One promo code for a 50, 50% sign-up bonus, your, BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. I will define the term myself, though I do not say that this is how other people do it. It's just how I – when I use it, this is how I, I think of it. Is Sure. I'm looking three to four years into the future, and the reason why there, – there are a couple of big ones. One big one is because the player you draft is probably not going to help you much in the first couple of years, especially the first year. That's – you know, unless it's a really high-end guy. That's just the way this works, you know. And there are arguments about how much you play them, you know, sort of the idea of – do you start your rookie quarterback or do you have them learn from Brett Favre on the bench? You know, like that, there are all sorts of different ideas there. But then the other reason why I'm say three to four years specifically is because for every front office, you're right, it is different, but that gives a clarification on what is going to stay the same and what is going to change. So if you feel like your head coach is in all likelihood, maybe not contractually, but you know, in all likelihood is still going to be there, then you consider the scheme stuff a little bit more. So if you are Portland and you are confident for whatever reason that that Terry Stotts is going to be your coach, then right. then then you can keep that. But if you're not confident that Terry Stotts is going to be your coach, then you can then that context matters a little bit less. Then it become then you're thinking more maybe you're going to be running a very different defensive system. But that doesn't just apply to schemes. It also applies to surrounding talent. So if you're so like let's take the Bulls for example, right? Right. Like they have Wendell Carter and Lowry Markinen already. Mm-hmm. And they have like Luke Cornett, who is like a totally serviceable third center. Um, you know, Thaddeus Young is a useful uh useful center, right? Uh, or useful like power forward and Otto Porter can sneak down and play the four. Like they should not be drafting a center because it's a waste of asset value to draft a center. It is it is unless that's like you think that player is is better. You know, like meaningfully better. Like we, so this is the idea with the Warriors. But the, pick. the problem with doing that is the, the opportunity that issue? well the opportunity issue and you just artificially deflate the trade value of your other centers. 
that. Yeah, yeah, like, that's if you, true. If you I genuinely mean, believe that like James Wiseman is better than Wendell Carter and want to take Wendell Carter, or you know, want to take James Wiseman and then move Wendell Carter, you move Wendell Carter before the draft. You don't do it after yeah. the draft and yeah, then I, take Wendell and yeah. take like James Wiseman, you know? Yeah, you don't and, and I mean there are circumstances where necessarily teams don't have to do that, like the Garland Sexton thing, though it's different in that circumstance. And and I mean I, I thought Garland No, was I, I still think that was like a mistake. Like I still think that was really silly to do that. Because I, you're not actualizing either of their trade. Well, what, the, the that. mistake that I think they made wasn't drafting either for trade value. Because I think you need they just needed more information. Like, it's not as focused on trade value. It's just like, can we find a good player? Who is your best chance at finding a good player? And Wendell Carter is an interesting threshold guy for this idea because I like Wendell Carter yeah. a lot. And I and when you're at the extremes, it's harder to play guys together. I mean, Indiana plays two centers. There are a few other teams that do it as well. But if there aren't that many, and generally one of them needs to shoot. And so your your concerns are well-founded. However, for me, the idea is of, of – so I talked about the three to four year. And it's, it's not just a single like straight up this is the expected value. One of the interesting ideas – Nate and I have talked about this a little bit. You and I have talked about this a little bit – is that – not all outcomes are the same level of value. You know, like a player with MVP upside, a player who could be the best player on a championship team, as long as there is a reasonable chance of it, it maybe not the like it's like the fifty percent outcome, but if it's like a ninety percent outcome, that is something important to consider. Whereas another player's ninety percent outcome might be a very good starter on a good team. And so it's a right. lot of different complicated things. And and where I was getting at with the the players being around as being an important factor there is for me, that's more – it's not as much about, okay, we can't overlap those players as more as this is the type of thing we might want to be doing. So the Hawks will plan on Trey Young being a part of their team. There are certain types of players that make sense with and without Trey Young. And since he is a affirmative player, that affects the way that you rank guys. So it isn't just in the abstract, this guy is going right. to be ranked as 78 in NBA 2K24. This guy is going to be a 77. So we take the guy who's going to be a 78. It, right. You know, it's because it's, it's, I talk a lot about the framework and it's like, well, or the, the foundation. Who's a part of that and who isn't? And and who could be because that can be something too. Maybe it's the you know this this can be a challenge for teams too. And and so you're evaluating sometimes those guys prematurely too. Like Mo Bamba, this is probably an interesting challenge with Orlando or the young point guards other than Jaw this year. A lot of that type of stuff is is really complicated. And and that's why to me you focus more on how good you think that guy is going to be rather than how good he fits in with the other guys. But if there's somebody who's locked in, then you can consider that a little bit. Yeah, and you know, like part of this is different too, where like with wings, you can basically never draft enough wings. Right. Celtics right? are a great example of that. I mean, they basically start three, sometimes four. Right. Um, with point guards, you know, if if one of them has size, you're probably fine because you know having size and like point guard skill, those guys are almost always NBA players, basically. Yeah, because and, and they can even slide it's, into it's a second hard. unit role or something else. Right. Exactly. So. It's all just very – it's just very interesting to me the way that we discuss um, discuss value because like the other part of this too is like you know, you and I have discussed the center position quite a bit uh, in like drafting centers, right? Like I had DeAndre Ayton at number one on my board uh, over Luka Doncic and I had Luka at two and I had them like 1A, 1B but I, I certainly had DeAndre at 1A and the reason I had DeAndre at 1A was because I – think and still do believe that he's going to be like an all NBA center. Um, 
But unless a guy has that kind of upside, like I had Wendell Carter at like 12 or something on my board. Like I, I had Mo Bamba at like six or seven and he goes like fifth. Like I had I like all I'm almost always going to be lower on centers than where they're going to be drafted. And the reason for that is that I see them now almost like the running back. I was going to say the same NFL. thing. Like either you're like, it, like you're a, like a, an incandescent level of talent, you know, the Saquon Barkley level or you're not. Right. right. And like, I think there's a real case. Like if you're the giants, you probably would rather have that Saquon Barkley pick back. If you're the Phoenix suns, you'd probably want to have that Deandre Ayton pick back. Like, I really do strongly believe that there's just enough replacement value across the board at the center position now uh, to where you can get a good one for the biannual exception. Like, look, Robin Lopez is kind of a different circumstance because, you know, his brother plays on the Bucks, and I'm sure that Robin Lopez wanted to go play with his brother on some level and might have had a better offer. And, and, from, on, and on a championship caliber team. And on a championship caliber team. Robin Lopez is making like four point six million dollars this year. The that's going to be less than like what the eighth overall pick makes next year, or like the seventh overall pick makes next year. Right. Like it, it's just well, and it, it's, it's crazy. The other the other part of the center position, there there are kind of two other big elements of it. That I think are worth discussing. One is that they sometimes get played off the floor. And so then, you know, right. if, if it's a center, that, that was the threshold. Nate and I did our center rankings a couple days ago for Dunked On. And we, we started talking about kind of like, where is that threshold? Where is it the, the guy, this guy's going to be on the floor almost no matter what? And for me, that's like a top five, top six thing. And so there are a lot of really good players who don't even meet that threshold. I mean, so what it's like, it's like Steven Adams, that threshold, like Steven I, I think really it's I think it's way higher than that. So like we were talking about, um, Depending on where you have Adams, like so for me, you know, is is Miles Turner? Maybe like twelve or so. I mean, for me, probably. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, an example of that also is Clint Capella. I mean, Capella, a good player, does does the things you need him to do. But Houston also partially because they have a star who can't shoot. Like Houston had different constraints, but you right. know, it's, it is it is a reminder. So playing him off the floor is one part. The other part, and part of, and this is informed significantly by. The closest team that I've spent time with is the Golden State Warriors over the last couple of years. Center, to me, is the position where it is most logical to use the patchwork quilt idea, which is different yes. guys that have different strengths and weaknesses, none of which cost a lot of money. So you can Which, have, by the way, the Celtics have adopted now. Absolutely. And a, a, a lot of teams can, I mean, to an extent, but like, you, know, you could argue that Houston, I mean, Houston just didn't pay Clint Capella, but you know, like, there are a lot of different ways to make it work. And so Boban— I mean, you the know, Celtics like, right now are paying like $12.5 million for the center position. Right, and they're and we thought they were going to have to upgrade and all the stuff, and they had a they had a high end defense without it. They were you know, and they were able, especially because Tice was so good this year. Some of that is scheme, right. some of that is players doing well, development, coaching, all all of those things fit together. Identification and Identific- scouting as well yeah, in everything. Tice's case, particularly. Absolutely, and, and so that is the other kind of facet of this with centers is that you kind of want different options unless you have one of those truly guys because some teams you can play that big bruiser and get 15 to 20 minutes with them sometimes you want a switchy guy sometimes you want a four spacer and sure if you can get one of the players who is all things to all people fantastic more power to you and if you can and also if you can identify that player in the draft process which is also a different thing you know like so it's not just 
having a guy who has top seven potential, but you know you want something more than a possibility there. Considering if they don't reach that threshold, they become significantly less valuable. That's a hundred percent right. Like a great example of that right now for me is Jaron Jackson Jr. Like everyone thought Jaron Jackson was going to be this like very switchable center because he moved his feet really well in college, and thought he was going to be like this awesome you know three-point shooting marksman who is like a perfect modern center if you look at how it's kind of played out in actuality with jaron it's not like he's really good he's really really good and he's shooting like 39 percent from three he's averaging 16 points a game his volume like, is insane but you i get what you're saying but he his movement skills in terms of like guarding on the perimeter and his ability to like protect the rim at an exceedingly high level, it's not great, especially whenever you also consider the fact that he's a disaster show defensive rebounder. Uh, he, he's just awful on the glass. So like this is a guy who has hit what is basically, I would argue, a, I mean, this is what a 75th percentile outcome for what you hope for Jaron Jackson. He's averaging like 17 points shooting 40% from three and, you know, not been like a total disaster on defense, right? Like that's a that's a definite positive outcome for his career so far, right? Yeah. And you're still in a circumstance now, and he's young, he's 20, like he's still an excellent player that, you know, probably will make an all-star game at some point, like at the center position. But even him hitting his 70th percentile outcome and doing well, he isn't like some infallible player that you can't take off the court. Like you still, he's still in a position where there are moments where he gets taken off the court late in games just because you have to do it. Right. And and Jackson, I, I like you using him as an example because it's not a failure. You know, that that's, Right. No, it's not not at all. It's not a player who just didn't live up to their dress. It's like, even if it works out, it doesn't necessarily work out. And I mean, that's I think that was the fear that I had with DeAndre Ayton the whole time. Why? Why I had him, you know, I had him below Luca and and also with Bagley to an extent, though I wasn't nearly as sold on Bagley in in a lot of respects because I thought he was a man without a country in a way that Jaron Jackson is not. Um, and Jackson's defense has been lower than I thought, so he might get into some of these problems too, depending on kind of yeah, where he De- goes. DeAndre Ayton is averaging 19 points and 12 rebounds a game right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ayton is doing – Ayton and his defense has grown significantly. Like he yeah. – again, again, he's – he's. I mean, and if he hadn't had the, the suspension, maybe we'd even be talking about him in, in more glowing terms. But there isn't a guarantee that he gets into that top eight, top ten range. I mean, that he gets in there and, yep. you know, holds it, and that's where the range is. Now, it is worth saying that the obsession over switching and all that stuff is probably overstated because we're, the Warriors are done, and we're not going to see another team quite like that probably for a little while. But the other yeah, part of I, this— I think also that teams are realizing that— it's easier to play drop coverage defense if you have like an awesome uh, rim protecting big man. Right. And, and also, the, but the other thing to consider is that there's this other weird thing Nate and I were talking about this with centers when we did our rankings is that even good defensive centers might not necessarily be good on the ones that are most important. You know, like just like there are guys who could do okay, but they're still going to get housed by Joel Embiid or Carl Anthony Towns is going to pick them apart. And, you know, you're not always thinking about oh, the well, best. Like, 
Here's a great example. Like you can make a case that Brooke Lopez should win defensive player of the year this year. Like you can make like a pretty real case. Absolutely. About it. I had him. And when they play Boston in the playoffs, like he's not going to be on the court at the end of games. He might be, but it's it's going to be harder. Yeah, you're right. They're they're going to play Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Gordon Hayward, and uh, Jason Tatum yeah. to close games against that team. And you just can't have Brooke on the court against those guys. He can't guard five guys on the perimeter. You have to put him on Marcus Smart. And Marcus is, you know, I, Brooke's short area quickness is really underrated and really good. But, like, you can't have him on freaking Marcus Smart. Smart's jump shot has improved enough that it might be a challenge. I think he might still do it. But, you know, there are counters. Basically, it's what do you want to concede? Um, it is It is a really interesting uh, an interesting question. Okay. Yeah, no question. Like, I'm I'm very interested to see what this looks like. Lots more with Sam Vecini, but first a message from I Survive. From the creator of Cold Case Files and PD Stories comes an awesome new true crime podcast, I Survived. I Survived shares firsthand accounts of amazing stories of survival. We've got a teaser for I Survived at the end of this episode, so stick around to check that out and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. The way that I want to handle the next part of it, you and I hopefully, and I expect, will talk draft prospects again before the draft happens. We don't know when the hell that is. I love talking with you, all that type of stuff. So what I was thinking, instead of going in-depth on players, also partially because I need to watch a lot of film, what I was thinking would be a worthwhile exercise. We can go through however many players you feel like. I was thinking top five, top ten. And what I want first is the positive but realistic positive elevator pitch for some of these guys like so so the idea is like okay if anthony edwards succeeds what does that look like i think it probably looks pretty similar to what victor oladipo was during his um all nba year so so on ball a lot but not all the time Yes. Effective defensively. No, uh, that's why I hinged. That's why I hinged it offensive side. <laughs> um, Anthony has tools to be effective defensively, but like Victor Oladipo won, you know, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. He was at, you know, Indiana. A big um, part of a big part of why they were a high for, turnover forcing team that year, and basically whenever Oladipo's been on the floor. Yeah, hundred percent. So um, on the offensive side of the floor, I think like he looks a lot like what Victor Oladipo looked like during the all NBA year. So like in getting, Indiana, getting downhill, but, shooting pull-ups when you have to, that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. All of that can really get to his pull up late in the shot clock. Um, yeah, all of that. So I would say him on offense on defense. I mean, it's, it's an adventure. It's definitely an adventure and he has tools to be good at it. it and he might eventually get to the point where he's good at it. He's just not there yet. Cause he's not aware enough. Okay, let's jump to the number. I'm just going to go through your mock draft in order, um, at least for now. Um, Lamello, sure. You have LaMelo Ball going second. Yes. So LaMelo, I think, oh, man. It's so hard to know you what to say about You don't have to, to compare them to LaMelo. a player. It can just be like a role or a niche or like what they do, what they do well that will make a team work. I think there's like a genuine case that LaMelo has the highest ceiling of any player in this draft if you believe he's going to shoot it. Because in terms of the way he's shifty, in terms of the way he sees the floor and can create passes out of the pick and roll, there's a lot of Rajon Rondo-y stuff there. Um, and I understand that like Rondo was, what, there was a time where Rondo was probably one of the three best passers in the NBA, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the ceiling for LaMelo Ball. Um, 
without knowing what LaMelo's shot is going to look like into the future. And you know what? Like, he's made strides with it, and he has clearly good touch. Like, I think there's a real chance that he becomes, like, an absolutely exceptional shooter. I... I would say a reasonable outcome for him is like top 10 starting point guard in the NBA, it, like a reasonable positive outcome. I, if he gets the shot figured out, he has a chance to be like top 15 player in the league, I think. But it, without the jump shot at all, there's a chance that just given his shot selection and decision making that he becomes like a second unit guy who is just like an offensive creator but ends up being a sieve defensively and makes these maddening decisions constantly. Like LaMelo ball has so much freaking talent, man. That guy is, that guy is a joke in terms of the way he sees the floor. Um, he sees things happen like two steps before anyone else. And man, I hope that he figures out the jump shot and figures out the decision-making because if he does, he has a chance to be legitimately special. But the floor there is very low, I think, in a way that should be concerning. And it's so weird that his older brother has established a real level of value by being a great defender, but LaMelo doesn't have that part of his floor yet. He's so much... Well, the thing is, he's so much better than Lonzo offensively. Just his ability, his shiftiness... The thing that Lonzo doesn't have is he's his hips are very inflexible, so he struggles to like change directions and uh, you know get guys off balance. Man, Lamelo is shifty as hell. He changes the uh, changes his pace exceedingly well. He is unbelievably uh, gifted as a ball handler and unbelievably gifted as a live dribble passer. Like the ceiling is the roof for Lamelo Ball if things get figured out, but the floor is low. Like if he can't shoot it and continues to take these fucking garbage 30 foot three pointers, despite that, like there's a real concern there. Let's go to the player you have third in your mock draft. Uh, Denny Avija. Yeah. So Denny is interesting. Denny's uh, a guy that can run pick and rolls at six foot nine. Uh, really, really good passer can make those cross corner kickouts that you look for. Uh, Developing as a shooter has had a really, really hot uh, last couple months as a shooter, but I wouldn't say that I feel confident in him yet. His mechanics look clean, like he gets a clean release, and there's every reason to believe that in time he'll be a good shooter. He's just not one yet consistently, and that's ultimately going to be a very real concern. So, so um, is he more of a like a? So I'm thinking like in terms of his his NBA role in in like a positive scenario. Is it more like a? I'm tr- trying to think. It's of like, like more fluid, more athletic Dario Saric. Okay, so of. I was I was thinking Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, more of like a forward okay. than Bogdan. Like, but in terms of Bogdan, role. like yeah, Bogdan played like as a lead guard right. in Europe a lot of the time, so and maybe, like you know so occasionally he does play on ball. I, I, in I, I hate Tennessee. to have to compare you know guys who play in Europe to guys who play in Europe, but maybe like Bielitsa, the year he won Euro League MVP. Bielitsa's more of a true like stretch big, whereas like Denny is more of like a three, like a combo forward. Okay, more than a because uh, like Nemanja, you're not going to run like Nemanja is not going to run pick and rolls sure. right as the ball handler. Though I still think like he, Denny he, can, he could still he can still do that sometimes, but the, but it hasn't happened much in the NBA at least. Right, like Denny does that. Like Denny can do that. 
Um, he's a little bit skinnier. He moves much better than Dario does, which is why I say like more fluid, more athletic guy than Dario Saric. But there's a lot of that there in terms of like the comparable player. And like, you know, Dario, I, you know, I know he's had a tough year in Phoenix, but like, I still think he's like a starting quality, you know, four man in the NBA. If he's in the right circumstance, uh, I, I would say Denny's ceiling is like a, a level above that. And maybe not ceiling, like a reasonable outcome for Denny like is like a level a 75%, above percent, Like a 75, 80% outcome. Well, I would say like 125% of Dario Sarge. Not sure. um, not like 75%. No, I'm talking yeah. like a 75% outcome. So it's like there's still better than he yeah, can be, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. Still, it's still, you know, you're, you're, you'd be you'd be happy with that relative to like w- where you started. Um, right. Yeah, no, I, I would say like, you know, similar Dario Saric, but like the athletic fluidity, the ability to run like pick and rolls and create his own shot a little bit better mm-hmm. um, takes him just like a level above him. Okay, what's the elevator sales pitch for James Wiseman? Uh, potentially at some point, the best rim protector in the NBA, uh, potentially one of the five best rim runners in the NBA because he high points a ball like no other, um, you know, he, he can really throw it down. And then a guy who can hit trailer and pick and pop threes, like that's a exceptionally valuable center in today's NBA. And from what I recall hearing with Wiseman, and this is going to sound like it's not in the elevator sales pitch, but he, he looks, he's more of a lower usage offensive player. Is that, does that seem right? Like, in yeah, an ideal no, world. definitely. But yeah, he's think, definitely going to be like, it's like Deandre Jordan, but actually nah, DeAndre's, as, but DeAndre Deandre's Jordan, a way better athlete. Hmm. It's a good question. Who is he? Who is like the center? He's, it's like Clint Capella, maybe, except if Clint could shoot and like knock down like trailer threes and stuff. Mm-hmm. on offense interesting and actually like put the ball on the deck like for a dribble or two you don't but, want him like he can't create his own shot but like you can run dribble handoffs with him where you know he fakes the dribble handoff dribbles twice with his left hand and then like goes to the basket could he do you think he could make the read and make a pass out of that if they collapse on him <laughs> we haven't seen it yet i will say the passing I mean, he's is 19 he's that, 19 like, really so maybe that concerning. could maybe that could get there and then right. defensively, is it defensive player of the year potential? Is it a little bit lower than that? Like where where kind of do you see the range there? Maybe I would feel more comfortable saying like all defense. But like, you know what? If you make an all defense team at the center position, you're basically like defensive player of the year potential, right? Yeah. Like Miles Turner didn't make the all defense team and was like also, the third Also, best they need to fix the all defensive teams for that exact reason. Yeah, totally agree. But I would say... Yeah, I would say like top five defensive center in the league um, is his ceiling. He is really, really, really good at uh, using his verticality now. And he's going to get stronger. He's already put on, you know, something like 25 pounds over the course of his like, you know, the end of his junior year in high school to where he is now. Like he's going to keep getting stronger. He's going to keep getting better. Um and keep being able to absorb the contact that people uh, bring into him. So I would say in terms of rim protection, top five defensive center in the NBA pretty easily. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely an interesting interesting combination. Uh, we can jump to there every, every year, because I don't watch film until after basically the college season is over because there isn't time. And that's still true this year because the college season is over. There are players who basically I had never heard of, and then all of a sudden they're soaring up the boards, and that is definitely true of Obi Toppin. 
Yeah, so Obi Toppin um, was a guy who declared for the draft last year. A couple of teams told me that like they sneaky tried to get him to stay in by promising to take him like in the second round and giving him a two-way. Um, he decided not to do that. And then he went to Nike Skills Academy this summer down here in Southern California at the Mamba Academy and was the best player in attendance. So I had him projected as a first-round pick to start the year. And then he turned into the guy that I voted for for National Player of the Year in college basketball. Uh, He is so multifaceted offensively. He's not just a guy that, like, you can run dribble handoffs with and he can, you know, take a couple dribbles and score. He can, like, legitimately pass out of those scenarios. There was a play against Kansas earlier this year. It was either Kansas or Virginia Tech. I can't remember. It was down in Maui. And he caught the ball on in the corner, took two dribbles to his right, went behind the back with a dribble or behind his legs with a dribble, stepped back into a three point jumper swish, like pull up jumper as like a six foot nine guy with a six eleven wingspan. Um, they started running like so. Anthony Grant is their head coach and uh, was with Billy Donovan in Oklahoma City for a couple of years before he took the Dayton job and, and, and took was, a lot of – Grant was he, – he did something before OKC. Was he on Donovan's staff at Florida? Where was – I remember – He was on Donovan's staff at Florida, got a job at VCU as the head, head coach, made the tournament a couple of times, got the job at Alabama as head coach and you know kind of washed out and wasn't – wasn't great enough there. Honestly, like he was not nearly good enough as an offensive coach. Then he went to the NBA, picked up a lot of concepts and their offense was the most NBA like offense I've seen all year mm-hmm. or I saw all year. Like they would run these horn sets where they would throw the ball into spin at the elbow and then they'd have the guy at the opposite elbow who was typically Ryan Mikesell, who's like this six foot seven stretch four, um, you know, white kid. And they would have top and run like dribble handoff actions with the opposite big man coming off of the elbow. And then top and could either like reject the handoff and try and make a pass or try and uh, drive if he saw an open lane. Or he could hand it off to Mikesell and then like pop out for a three or try and run like a roll to the basket. He's just so multi-versatile in how he can attack on offense. He is the epitome of like a modern uh, like combo four or five man uh, in the NBA, in my opinion. So I'm trying to visualize this. You, you talked about his potential fit with the Warriors in the mock drafts, but is the is the vision for it that he's maybe like your second best offensive player? That he, you know, he's not necessarily running the show every possession, but that he makes he makes everything more dangerous. Yes, he's like an offensive enhancer. Um, there's like a ceiling that exists. Like I would say, this like 90th percentile outcome is like he turns into something similar to what we've seen from Pascal Siakam, maybe like 95th percentile outcome. But he's not that long, and he's not quite as fluid. He's more of a power athlete, whereas Siakam is like more of a fluid athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like a similar four man that can handle the ball and can create and like can get to his own shot, like off of pull ups. Uh, and finish at the basket at an exceedingly high level. Is it 
the, the other guy that I'm thinking of with this comparison is later career Blake Griffin. There's some of that. Yeah. Like obviously There's we're not comparing him to what early career Blake Griffin did from an athleticism standpoint or anything else, but like late career Blake Griffin in the modern NBA, like as a young guy would be fascinating. Well, like here's the thing too. Uh, Toppin is a freak show athletically in terms of like, he is like, he's not, I don't know if he's quite Blake level in terms of like leaping explosiveness. Like, I don't know that I would pick Obi Toppin to win a dunk contest, but he's just that level below. Like Mm. he is a power athlete, power dunker. Um, Like did a, in a single game this year, he like backed down this like point guard or shooting guard for George Washington and threw down like one of those Dwight Howard dunks where like he throws the ball in the basket. He threw down a baseline like um, I guess like you would almost call it a 360, but it's not quite a 360 where like the guy jumps, uh, goes underneath the hoop and then uh, spins and throws it down on the other side of the basket. Yeah. And then got a play out in transition and did a between the legs dunk in a game. Interesting. Like. He is a freak show athletically. Um, not quite as skilled as late career Blake. Like late career Blake was unbelievable in terms of like skill set. I mean, he also was a also sad that we're using we're, we're using late career Blake, meaning recent. Hopefully, he still has a long career left, and this will be mid career Blake. But you get people will get what we're saying. I mean, regardless, we're in late career Blake. Like he's thirty one now, yeah, right? Sure. Like I, I really hope that Blake late, gets late, healthy. Late, yeah, let's say post prime or like late prime Blake. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like he's not that skilled, but I understand but what you're saying. And I think Toppin's that there's what, 20, some of that. 20, 21? He turns 22 before he'll play a game in the NBA. Okay. So he's, so he's a little bit older then. Um, what about, so how does that, or does it translate defensively? I worry about, so Dayton put, didn't put him in a ton of positions where he was like forced to guard perimeter players defensively. I saw him do it at Nike Skills Academy this summer, and I really worried about his hip flexibility and his ability to drop his hips and like uh, stay in front of guys while sliding laterally. Uh, it, it just isn't all that fluid. Uh, his his hips are more like load power, you know, vertical explosion hips okay. as opposed to like lateral fluid movement uh, hips, which is concerning. Uh, that, that I would say is the biggest concern for me. I, I do not worry at all about him translating offensively. I think he's absolutely going to, I worry a bit about what he looks like defensively. And if he's like kind of a tweener four or five defensively. Let's jump to the, the number six player on your board. Another one that I was less familiar with on Yeko Kongwu, uh, big out of oh, the sea. Oh, what a, what a fun player. Like, this is probably a 90th percentile, 95th percentile outcome. But, like, imagine if Montrez Harrell could play, like, high-level defense. Okay, okay. Like, similar elite-level rim runner, elite-level um, vertical explosiveness, elite-level power. Like, he has that, like, you know, Montrez is, like, kind of a thicker dude. But um, the thing with... Kong Wu is like he carries 245 pounds exceedingly well and like guys just bounce off of him despite him being like 6'8", 6'9", um, without like he's like probably like plus four or plus five in terms of wingspan like okay. Montrez is, you know, plus nine or something absurd. Um, 
but he has a little bit more height than Montrez, and he is a monster rim protector. He, uh, I believe, average. He was top thirty in block rate in the country. Average like two point eight blocks. Um, had I believe that when he was on the floor, USC allowed teams to shoot forty six percent from the field or from at the basket. Nice. And when he was off the floor, they shot fifty one and a half percent at the basket. Um, and he's a really good switchable defender who can go out on the perimeter and like legit stick with guards because he can really drop his hips and like uh, really like sit down in a stance. He, and he plays hard all the time. Like he's a guy that I feel exceptionally confident is going to at least be a high level third big man in today's NBA. There's a world where he's like elite level defender, like top eight defender in the NBA at his position plus averages like 17 points a game. Nice. Yeah, that, that there's and again, it ties in with the center position, but there is definitely a sales pitch for that type of guy. I, I something I thought was significant in your mock was that he went to the Cavs and this is a great idea, a great example of why I say look 3 to 4 years out. They just traded for Andre Drummond. They didn't give up a lot to do so. But remember that Drummond has this insanely lucrative player option for the 2020/21 season that we all expect that he's going to pick up. So then if you draft Okongwu and it works out, then you just don't re-sign Drummond. You know, you get in that. Now, maybe you end up in a Vooch situation where you pay the you pay the vet and then you just hope that you'll figure it out. But if again, if the Cavs think that he's the player on the board, especially with the potential defensively, considering that has been such a hole for them, and you know, that's it's a great way to make yourself a viable team. You know, not necessarily next year, but a couple years later, is just having a center that can be your anchor. Yeah, no doubt. Um you know, I wouldn't feel great about playing those two together. Right, but, but if you have 48 minutes of those two. Right, that's fantastic, especially with them, you know, in all likelihood losing someone like Tristan Thompson. Yeah, I, I don't expect that he will want to be back there. Uh, let's jump to number seven on your mock draft, Isaac Okoro out of Auburn. Yeah, Okoro uh, is an elite-level defender at 18 years old, and I know that, like, that's rare, so I don't say that lightly. Um, is he so okay? So elite level defender on ball, off ball, both. Uh, I would say both. Yeah, wow. he's really switchable and really aware off ball. Um, yeah, so like, really, so really like, good. Uh, like I thought he was one of the fifteen to twenty best defenders in college basketball this year. So at like, eighteen years old, um, Michael Kidd Gilchrist. Like I was thinking of him as like another talented freshman defender. That's probably not- a little worse than that defensively. MKG was really good though. Yeah, like Michael Kidd Gilchrist was like top five defender his year. Um, I would say he's a little bit below that threshold. Okay. But like really good, really, really high level defender, elite level wing defender. Um, I'm like a little bit like there are people like pushing him as as like a top five pick. And I'm a little bit lower than that because I really do worry about the offense. He's not a good shooter yet. And like it's both the numbers aren't great and the mechanics aren't great. Um, Like he has like these weird like um, almost like hunched shoulders into the shot and then like shoots it like right in front of his face. It's like it's a very funky looking shot um, that's going to have to be worked with. So. I had I had forgotten about that part of this. So the Michael Kid, the Michael Kid Gilchrist stuff is I mean it's probably not that broken, but that maybe that's even more. No, accurate. it's not that broken. Like my, Michael's was like, holy shit, this man is shooting the ball from the other side of his face. 
like for, not even from the other side of his face. He's he's a righty shooting it like off of his left shoulder mm-hmm. with like his elbow getting under the ball on the side. Like Isaac Okoro gets a pretty clean release. It's just a funky looking shot that's going to have to be fixed. Um, Okoro is having said that a guy that can actually create his own shot a little bit off the dribble and has really, really good body control driving to the basket. Like he has Euro step ability. Like he has, um, you know, the ability to avoid guys in midair, like despite being more of a power athlete, he has that like sense of grace almost there too. He's very, very interesting. Very, 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 uh, interesting. Like, from a frame perspective, from a defensive uh, ability perspective, an ability to create his own shot. Like I get it why people are talking about like he reminds them of Jimmy Butler. Okay. Now, Jimmy, the thing is that Jimmy became like a high level pull up shooter. And that's probably an unrealistic outcome for a Coro, like becoming an all NBA like top. 12 player in the league guy because you can create your own shot at the end of shot clocks at will. I don't expect that to happen with a Coro. I do expect him to be an exceedingly high level role player who does all the little things, plays exceedingly hard, uh, maybe figures out something with the jump shot. Um, and then, you know, kind of plays as like a second side, like maybe even like reversal back, uh, you know, third or fourth option offensively. Yeah, and I mean, if a, I mean, this is part of the gamble that Travis Schlenk took with DeAndre Hunter. I mean, if you can, it's a different. He's kind of squaring a different circle than they did with Hunter because they they thought Hunter's jump shot was a little bit better. But there, if you could be a low usage guy if you're that damn good defensively. Yeah, definitely, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I would say just physically, I think DeAndre probably has a bit more upside defensively as soon as he like because he's a bigger bigger dude yeah he's like six seven and a half six eight has like a seven two wingspan has enormous hands um he's better on ball defender Mm -hmm. but in terms of like reactivity instincts etc i do think that a coro is slightly better in those regards especially for a kid that's like 18 years old you're number eight appropriately going to a team in North Carolina, the North Carolina product, Cole Anthony. Yeah, I would say like, you know, reasonable outcome is like, you know, mid-level starting point guard in the NBA. Um, And he's, so he's more, more offense than defense, correct? More offense than defense, but I don't think he's a liability on defense. Okay. Um, You know, he's a guy that... Yeah, you know, I've seen him get switched on to bigger guys before, like in camp settings, and like he seems to relish it. Like he's like, there's he has that like little man, like Chris Paul ideal, where he's like, oh, this big dude thinks he has a mismatch. There's no way this guy's scoring on me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he has some of that fight in him. Also, was like a really, really good teammate from what I was told uh, when he was dealing with the injury earlier this year. Like a lot of guys, like sometimes they just shut it down. You know, Cole was there his entire the entire way just like battling scratching clawing you know cheering on his teammates like really fighting to get back in the lineup uh so that stuff i think really helps him the big thing is like he just plays you know when he doesn't have good teammates he's gonna play selfishly and that's just a reality of the situation um 
he had really bad teammates at North Carolina this year and took a lot of really fucking terrible shots. Uh, there's just not another way to put it. And the question is going to be, how do NBA players respond to that when he goes to that kind of world? And I hope that he kind of figures that part of it out uh, because being a point guard that guys want to play with is an exceptionally important part of being a point guard. Right, and it's it's a challenging position. I mean, you think about how some of the best ones have discussed, you know, keeping guys ready and and the the kind of the mental emotional parts of it as well as the you know the the peer on like making the open pass type of stuff, and that that can be a challenge. Yeah. But also, he's and going to be way, in a much, like, much better position, a favorable position in that than he was in North Carolina because it you know even though we said that about the Duke guys and their spacing, and some of those guys ended up in spacing limited situations in the pros, it's still going to be better for him than UNC was. And kind of like um, kind of like with uh, Cole Anthony, the thing is too that. I've seen him make really creative passes like in camp settings where he has good teammates. Like I've seen him be this distributor type. It's just that he often falls away from that. And I think like he's shown the ability to do what he has to do. He just has to be willing to do it consistently. And I think the teams that have done their homework on him will have to make their own call on that based on the framework of a team they're going to be putting him within. Let's move on to hmm. the number nine guy in your mock draft, a player that I think I saw when he was 16 back at Basketball Without Borders in LA, Killian Hayes. Um, what is the kind of the sales pitch for what he could be? Yeah, elite level passer out of pick and roll, you know, similar to LaMelo Ball in that vein. I think LaMelo's probably a little bit better just because he can get separation in a way that Killian can't. He's just a little bit more explosive in and out of his moves. And, you know, a little bit better defensively than LaMelo Ball. But, you know, I'm looking for offensive upside here. And of course, I really think that Killian Hayes is uh, a terrific, terrific pick and roll playmaker. I just worry about having to put him next to a guy who can get his own shot consistently. Um, because that's one thing. Like, Killian Hayes is not a great athlete. Uh, by NBA standards, obviously, but, you know, uses change of pace really well and uses ball screens with his footwork really well. So so kind of like D'Angelo Russell? But, yeah, that's where the problem comes in. D'Angelo's a very high-level shooter. He takes a lot of tough shots, so his percentages don't really show. But, like, D'Angelo's an exceptional shooter from all three levels. Uh, well, at least the mid-range and the three-point shot it's, he can knock down, I would say he's an levels. exceptional finisher. Yeah, yeah. but... With Hayes, he's not that level shooter yet. He needs to be either more athletic or he needs to be a better shooter. Obviously, the shooting part is the more likely outcome when it comes to that. So I would say that's going to be the thing that holds him back. I think at some point he'll probably be a little bit better as a shooter. Uh, And if he does get better as a shooter, it does give him very real upside to be something in that range, maybe like a slightly worse D'Angelo Russell. But... I do like Hayes enough as a prospect and as a way that he can affect winning because he is a very good and attentive defensive player. I always wonder with six foot five guys whether they're better off defending ones or twos. What is your? It, it might not be definitive because I mean, caliber athletes are so much better than what he's been facing in Germany. But where were you reading that so far? Yeah, tough to say right now. I think uh, I, I would venture he's probably going to be a little bit better against twos, but. It'll be close. Okay. 
He's, what he does really well is he's a really good team defender. Okay, he's really and, good in rotation. And that's really good, good on the, at on the passing line. lanes. Yep. I, like to have have somebody like that as long as they they can execute, they can do what you're asking, all that kind of stuff. Uh, last guy, I know you've been high on him for a long time, Tyrese Maxey out of Kentucky. Yeah, Tyrese just didn't have an awesome year, unfortunately. Uh, part of that was team fit, right? Like. They played all of, you know, Nick Richards. They like to, Nick can shoot a little bit, but they like to post him quite a bit. And they play him with EJ Montgomery, who's just kind of a non factor offensively. And Ashton Hagens is a non shooter. And, um, you know, Emmanuel quickly ended up taking up a lot of offensive usage because he became the SEC player of the year. But with Maxi, Maxi is a terrific uh, shot creator and scorer. He is a three-level scorer as long as you believe in the jump shot. The problem is he shot 29% from three this year. Uh, I personally believe he's just a much better shooter than that. He is way better touch than that. His floater game is ridiculous. Um, he shot better than that from three uh, throughout the entire, uh, uh, what it was the word I'm looking for, exhibition circuit like McDonald's and Hoop Summit last year. He shot better from three than that in high school. Like I, I just kind of think it was an aberrant year. And he's going to shoot better at some point. But, you know, it, you know, it's 29 percent a tough number to get past. And I get that. The thing that he does exceptionally well, though, is he's a very good defender and an elite level kid that is an exceptional worker as well. So uh, you throw all that together. I think he's probably kind of like a secondary playmaker who's an elite level defender who can play bigger than his size defensively. Because he's built like a safety, basically, like an NFL safety. He is huge and enormous, uh, and that will allow him to play up a little bit and allow him to potentially play the two, despite being somewhere between six three and six four. Yeah, I, I, there, I, there was a time when I thought that Beverly was an interesting comp for Maxi, but I think that the in between game and the ability to potentially create his own shot is a little bit different. He's also not the same type of defender as Beverly, but I, I don't know. What do you what right. do you think about that as kind of like a first blush? I think that that player type is right. The you know once you get into the details of him versus Pat Beverly, like Pat Beverly is just a lot more tenacious in the way that he attacks mm -hmm. players on the court. Um, you know, so th that's a pretty significant difference. I think that Pat's probably a bit more athletic as well. Uh, not quite as skilled as a scorer though, but I think that uh, you're in the ballpark in terms of what the role will be. Nice. I, I, I will, I will let you decide quickly if you want to do, I because I know you really like Tyrese Halliburton. Do you want to do him or do you want to just leave it at the top 10 for now? Let's do the top 10. I, I don't, you know, Halliburton's fine. I like Tyrese. He's a good player. I think he's going to be in the NBA for a while. A um, couple guys I do want to note. Uh, I want to note the three wings here uh, that are all very close to one another. Uh, Devin Vassell, uh, Aaron Neesmith, and Sadiq Bay. I like Bay the best out of the trio because I think he's uh, got the most ceiling defensively, I will say. Vassell also has quite a good ceiling defensively and i think he can get to his pull-up jumper a little bit more that's why i would imagine he's gonna go just the highest out of this trio but i've also been high on aaron neesmith for basically a year and a half now and uh he has really come through and shot 52 percent on 115 three-point attempts this year and looks like a real potential uh three-point marksman that has size at 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan and a 220-pound frame. 
So uh, all three of these guys are really good. And I think if you're looking for uh, reasons to be excited about this class in the middle of the draft, I would say that that trio of wings is the big reason. Interesting. Well, that's, that's exciting. I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on those guys moving forward. Oh, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yeah, of course, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. Before we go, I want to play a quick conversation I had with Dave Mason at Bet Online, talking about all the interesting irons they have in the fire right now, even in a largely non-sports world. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This this is not a common circumstances for a conversation between the two of us, but I think that opens the door for some interesting stuff because I mean, Bet Online, you are a, a a wide ranging business, and you're having to tap into the wider ranges of that business compared to what we usually discuss. Yeah, we always push the limits. You know, we, we're we're always uh, looking for new opportunities and, and different ways to bet, and <laughs> we're really uh, putting our creativity to the test this past week. So. You know, first and foremost, we have a great poker room and a great casino. So those haven't been affected at all about with, with with what's going on. So, you know, actually business is better than ever in there because, you know, a lot of not as many sports to bet on, obviously. So a lot of people are taking their action into the casino and poker room. So that that's the good thing. But, yeah, from a sports perspective, you know, I, I deal mostly, mostly with the sports side of things. So we're getting creative and we're trying to put as much content on the site as possible. Of course, nothing's ever going to replace March Madness and the end of the uh, push for the NBA playoffs. But, um, but we're putting a lot of content out there and we're always looking for uh, new opportunities. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a challenge also because things are changing so quickly, but there are still, there are still avenues for people, which is, which is great. Absolutely. You know, in the way I see it, hey, if you want to sit on the sidelines until the big leagues get back, no problem. I understand. But if you, if you still want to be entertained, you know, there's going to be a lot of bored people. And I'm one of them sitting in my house. <laughs> you know, you know, I take so much damn Netflix and everything. I, I still need to entertain myself with a little bit of action. I might not be betting as much as I was a few weeks ago, but I need to put a f- couple bucks on something. So uh, whether it's poker, casino or some some uh, other league, sports league, or just some wacky stuff. So we're here for if you want to put a couple bucks of action tonight. What of that more obscure stuff that's still on the board is, is do you find interesting? Are there discussions among you guys about like what stuff is was worth putting up there? It's nonstop. I, I can't keep up with the emails. You know, we gotta. You know, like I said, we're 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 always heavy into the uh, you know the PR kind of off the wall ideas you know some books shy away from that they want nothing to do with that kind of stuff we've always you know uh, wanted that you know we've always wanted that pr stuff the kind of viral stuff that's going to go viral on twitter or you know big outlets will will, um pick up etc so we have a team of guys that you know we, we we just you know, put ideas and, and emails back and forth, and I can't keep up, man. I'm still ca- catching up from emails earlier in this uh, earlier today on ideas. So, yeah, I mean, it's out everything from weather to to stock prices to video game stuff we're working on, research and marble races. You know, you name it, it's it's out there, and and uh, you know that's the thing. We we take care of one idea, and two more ideas come in, so it, it's nuts, you know. Well, yeah, and and also when you when you create a like a, a feeling that you want to try to find the next great thing that everybody's going to keep keep trying to go after it themselves oh absolutely i mean you know like i said some books will stay on the sidelines and just wait till the 
leagues come back and some books so it will be an arms race to get creative and, and that that works two ways you know sure it, it keeps your players engaged and keeps them betting not all of them it's one big numbers game you know but it, but it, it'll keep a bunch of guys interested and also on the pr front it's get, we're getting you know this kind of pr guys uh you know, this is a Super Bowl right now because it's like all sorts of crazy stuff going on that, you know, the, the, the options are absolutely limited. Every day something happens where we can put PR props up for it and uh, and, and get people betting. Well, yeah, and then you also – there's always the possibility of futures and everything else like that, which is yep. which, which can be really exciting. Absolutely, and you know, this past week, of course, the NFL free agency, uh, you know, that, that always gets people betting those futures. Those futures are on the move after – after these quarterback signings and whether the odds go up, odds go down, people are always interested in that. And yeah, those futures took a lot of action. And we're actually running for the Super Bowl futures and World Series futures. We're running those at a zero percent household right now, so those are basically juice-free futures. So that's another good benefit for the for the players if they want to get down on futures, they're going to get the best value right now. We're not we're not, we don't have a household connected to them at all. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting and worth worth taking a look at. Uh, anything else that you want to want to share before before we part ways? No, not at all. I mean, you know, we're open for business. Bet online's open for business, and uh, if you want to bet in that poker room or the casino, they're both open and thriving. There's more promos and more tournaments than ever before. Our guys really ramped it up there, and uh, we got all sorts of interesting stuff in the sports book as well. If you if you still want to get a little taste, whether it's uh, Chilean basketball, or the, what the weather's going to be like in your city. Come on over to BetOnline.ag and check it out. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Dan. Take care, buddy. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. There are many people in our world right now that have a lot more time, and Sam actually, because of all the amazing stuff that he's doing, r- reporting and figuring things out for The Athletic, actually is one of the the people who's has a lot more on his plate right now, so I really do appreciate him taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his work at The Athletic. He had that mock draft that came out on, I believe that was Wednesday, totally worth reading, and also all worth noting since they're one of my employers as well, The Athletic is doing a, uh, I think, I believe it's a 90-day trial for um, new subscribers, which is fantastic, great way to check out all the, the, the work that we're doing, and I believe theathletic.com slash capspace will, will still work, but if not, just, just find it. We have links out there and everything else like that. You can also, of course, follow Sam on Twitter, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. Support him. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast when he puts new episodes out and everything else that he does. Great follow on Twitter. Really in touch with what's going on now. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode. Really do appreciate that, especially in this time, because those numbers are more important now than they have been, honestly, in years for most podcasts, because we're trying to get proof of concept here that people will still listen during the stoppage. So if there's a show that you like and that you care about being on the air, give them downloads, give them listens now, because then they can stay on the air and they can keep keep making it work. And for me, it's a nice you know solace respite um as i think came up at the beginning i'm sheltering in place which is going fine but it's you know it's it i have more <laughs> i have more time because you could say uh so yeah you can do that and the most important thing though for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors bet online use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent sign up bonus and check out i, I the i survive podcast there will be a uh, a promo at the end of this you can listen to that 
hopefully it's it's something that's interesting to you. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to reach out. I don't promise that I'll respond, but I do promise to read everything because I value and respect the time that it takes for you to do so. And I've, I get good suggestions, some of which will be incorporated in the show, some of which were already planned. It's just like you, you work on this kind of like rainy day idea, and a lot of us have similar rainy day ideas, so we'll work through some of that. But Real Jam Radio will continue to go strong. I have a lot of different ideas, a lot of different content. I mean, I already had the next month largely lined up before the hiatus and a lot of those aren't changing so we'll, we'll see where things go but my goal with all of this is to give you something to distract you to give you something to to focus on that isn't as much the heaviness though of course sam and i did talk about that in the early going um and it works that way for me too so the, the more you guys engage and, and listen and everything like that that the better it is for me so it's it's a I, I talk about feedback loops, and that's a feedback loop too. Is that the 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 more into the, the things that you care about, you get now in certain circumstances that can lead to more of that content existing. So if you have the ability to do so, but I know some of you have far more important things to focus on and worry about, and obviously those things come first. But take care, stay safe, and make it a great day. I survived because I convinced him that I was a person. I survived because. I was a smarter person than my assailant. I survived because I I believe God saved me. From the network that brought you the Cold Case Files podcast comes I Survived. He had his right hand held high up in the air, and in that hand was a big knife. The classic stories you know. Pointed the gun at me and he said, if you don't smoke this, I'm going to kill you. And he forced me to smoke crack. And I said, it looks like dynamite. And he said, if you do not do every single thing we tell you to do, you will disintegrate. With new interviews, updating each woman's story with everything that happens after survival. I was waking up in the middle of the night, standing on top of our bed, screaming. And I was positive he was in the room. I felt like a throwaway person. I didn't think anybody would ever love me again. We talk about the justice system. My testimony, I was not a tearful widow. And I think the jury saw me as someone who was not grieving appropriately. How they started to heal. I know in the black community, there's like this stigma that if you go get help, like there's something wrong with you. I really felt strongly that I needed to just basically give away everything we had and drive to Alaska. And so much more. I don't know, you just have to let people understand that every reaction is normal. And if you survived it, you did the right thing. That which does not kill you will make you stronger. I am so much stronger than I was even before. And I've really enjoyed feeling that way. Surviving is just the beginning of their story. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.